0: North Roanoke this morning, our service is a bit different because the book of Amos has led me to conclude that we need not be guilty of presumptive faith. That it would be wise of us to consider our hearts before we endeavor to sing and cry out to our great God. We continue in our study through the minor prophets, the book of the twelve that are packaged together by Hebrew scribes as essentially one book with twelve many parts, each contributing their own layer to expose for us who Christ is. And we come to the book of Amos, and if we could summarize the book of Amos in a couple of words, it would be presumptive faith that the Israelites had presumed upon the goodness of God. They'd presumed upon the favor of God who had called them out to be his people. And they had taken that presumptiveness and said, well, since I know about God, then I have his protection. In the first couple of chapters of Amos, Amos lists the historic enemies of Israel. And he says, for three transgressions and four, I'm going to judge you. And essentially the He judges the surrounding nations of Israel for crimes against humanity. And then he comes to a seventh nation, Judah, who he judges. And then he comes to Israel. And through the bulk of chapter 2, he catalogs the offenses of Israel. In chapter 3, he tells us certain judgment is coming against Israel in the form of an earthquake and exile. An unnamed enemy, who we know is Assyria, is going to come and capture Israel and disperse them into the nation's. And then we come to chapter 4, which is where we will pick up the text this morning. Amos chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Amos chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor and crush the needy. Say to your husbands, who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. The Lord has sworn by his holiness. Behold, days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. You will go through the wall breaches, each one straight before her, and you will be cast to harm and declares the Lord. Enter Bethel and transgress. The Lord is being sarcastic here. Enter Gilgal, multiply transgression, bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days, offer a thank offering also from that which is leavened, and proclaim free will offerings, make them known, for so you love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord. But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and lack of bread in all your places, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you, while there were still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain on one city, and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on, while the other part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet, you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel, for behold... Here's a hymn to the sovereignty of God in verse 13. Behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts. He who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts, meaning the God of armies, is his name. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Hear this word which I take up for you as a dirge, O house of Israel. She has fallen. She will not rise again. The virgin Israel, she lies neglected on her land. There is none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city which goes forth a thousand strong will have a hundred left, and the one which goes forth a hundred strong will have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me that you may live, or He will break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel, for those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. He who made Pleiades and Orion and changes deep darkness into morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. It is he who flashes forth with destruction upon the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them. Though you've built houses of well-hewn stone, yet you will not live in them. Though you've planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. Therefore, at such a time, the prudent person keeps silent, for it is an evil or a calamitous time. Seek good and not evil. That you may live, and thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you've been saying that he is. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, there is wailing in all the plazas. And in all the streets they say, alas, alas. They also call the farmer to mourning. And the professional mourners to lamentation. And in all the vineyards there's wailing because I will pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. The word pass through there is the same word of God in Egypt, not passing over the firstborn sons of Egypt, but passing through and taking their lives. Verse 18, Alas, You who are longing for the day of the Lord. For what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him. Then goes home, leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light? Even gloom with no brightness in it? I hate. I reject your festivals. Nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offering of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God, we come before you this morning, a needy people. We don't want to just sing songs and clap our hands and offer offerings. We, we don't want our worship to be merely heard by us. We want it to be received by you. So, Spirit of God, I pray that you would take this text and that you would would anoint me and allow my, my mouth to be loosened, that I might proclaim what it is you are wanting us to know about faith and the dangers of presumptive faith this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amos is not a very popular prophet in Israel because he wasn't from Israel. He was from the Shepherd fields near Bethlehem, just about six miles south of Bethlehem, where he was keeping sheep there in Tekoa. And God says, Go sell, tell a message to your neighbor to the north, go to your friends in the north, Israel, and tell them that exile and earthquake are coming because I am not impressed with their presumptive faith. Though they say they know me, nothing about their lives suggests that they know me. Amos in, in chapter 7, Amaziah, the high priest at Bethel, says, Hey, why don't you hit the road? Go back to. Judah and be one of those professional prophets for hire. And Amos says, I'm not a prophet. I'm a shepherd. And God came to me and he said, I've got to give you this message. In verse 8 of chapter 3, he says, the Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Accepted or not, Amos has to deliver God's message. And here's his message. We must not presume upon our familiarity with the things of God. Just because you come to church every week, just because you sing songs every week, just because your mom and dad sang Jesus loves me and read Bible stories to you does not mean that you're in the grace of God. Just because you're close to the grace of God does not mean that you've received the grace of God. There are, to be sure, some safe presumptions in life. There are many presumptions that are, relatively speaking, a safe bet. I'll be able to put my... Key in the ignition of my car this morning, and it's going to start. And guess what? This morning, praise God, it did. However, a couple years ago, Stacy and I got up. We had our kids locked in their five-point harnesses. My back was aching, bending over in an angle because we had a big, steep driveway. And I got in the car all happy. We had six minutes to get to church, which was seven minutes away. And we put the <laughs> key in the ignition, and it wouldn't even turn. So safe assumptions, Right? But sometimes even our safe assumptions fail us. We could assume, one would think, that on clear sunny days that people will at least go the speed limit because they're going somewhere they need to be. That's something that I used to assume in Roanoke when I lived here 10, 11 years ago. But you can't assume that anymore for two reasons. One, I guess people aren't really going anywhere. And two, cell phones. I mean... You can't text and drive the speed limit cuz you're afraid you're going to hit something. Guess what? You are. Don't text and drive. That's, that's a free commercial. And thirdly, thirdly, we can assume that Virginia Tech will beat the University of Virginia in football this year. I mean, I mean even our safe safe presumptions, let's face it. Even our safe presumptions fail from time to time. I think at least once in the last 30 years UVA's beaten Virginia Tech in football. <laughs> <laughs> but see there's there's some presumptions that we shouldn't laugh about it's it's eternally devastating that we would spend a life around the things of god and never know him Th- that we would presume to know a holy god And that we would stand before him and hear him say, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And he will say, Depart from me. I never knew you. In verse 2 of chapter 8, God says of Israel, his chosen people, that they're like a basket of overripe summer fruit that must be done away with. And he says, I will spare them no longer. So what is presumptive faith? Presumptive faith is faith that preempts the pursuit and the performance of God's holiness and moves right along to assuming that we have his protection. Israel was confident in their citadels. They were confident in their strongholds. And God says, therefore, thus says the Lord, an enemy which we know is Assyria will pull down your strongholds from you and your citadels will be looted. The fortresses in which Israel was trusting would fail her because she was not trusting in the name of the Lord who is a strong tower to whom the righteous run and find that he is safe. Those who practice presumptive faith are sinners verse 10 of chapter 9, who constitute a sinful kingdom verse 8 of chapter 9, and their worship as we just read at the end of chapter 5 is rejected by God, How is it then that we can know, North Roanoke, that God receives our worship? Graduates, how is it that you can know that God will grant you to bring honor and glory to Him as a fragrant offering wherever you go, whatever you do? How can we know, North Roanoke, that our singing will actually be heard by God this morning? How can we know it will be heard by someone other than ourselves, that the offerings that we just gave will actually be acceptable in God's sight? You see, to know that our worship is received by God, which is why we've inverted the worship service this morning, we're going to go out of here and we're going to have an opportunity to do business with God and to sing praises to him with full confidence that someone other than us is hearing, that God himself is listening. To know that our worship is received by God, we must not evaluate our standing before God by comparison with other people. In particular, other people that we look at and say, well, he's not as good as I am. Secondly, we must see God's current discipline as a means of his grace. And thirdly, we must pursue the justice and the righteousness of God. First, we can't evaluate ourselves by comparing ourselves with everyone else. In chapters 1 and 2, As I said just a moment ago, the historic enemies of Israel that surround Israel are called out for judgment. Indeed, he says, for three transgressions and four, and then he lists only one transgression. What's he doing? He's saying, For the first three I was gracious. I gave you I was long-suffering. I gave you a time to repent. And then he lists the fourth transgression, saying, Time is up. Now to each of these charges against the enemies of Israel, what would have Israel been saying? That's right. Go, God. Yay. You judge. You get them. Go get Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab. We know that we are your people, God, and we know we're going to be the seed of your kingdom. So we're just going to sit here and do nothing about your justice and righteousness, and we're going to have nothing to do with God, but we're going to presume upon your goodness because you have to be good to us because we're Israel. And then, like a good attorney, Amos turns away from the historic enemies of Israel and he turns to Judah and Jerusalem. Here you have a shepherd from Judah who calls out Judah and Jerusalem for rejecting the law and failing to keep God's statutes. Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. And it's almost like you can hear, when you read the text, it's almost like you can hear Israel go, "Uh uh-oh. If God's calling out Judah, what does that mean for us. You see, it's not God's, it's not Israel's specialness, but it is God's holiness that was the reason for God's judgment of the neighbor nations. And the reality is Israel is as guilty as her pagan neighbors. Indeed, Amos is making the case that Israel is guiltier. Than her pagan neighbors. For the pagan neighbors didn't have the special revelation of God. They did not have the law. They did not live their lives by the law. They were indicted for crimes against humanity that anyone with a conscience should have known about. But Israel was held to a higher standard because God had given himself to Israel. And though she had special access to God's special covenant privileges... God has to bring special judgment to them because they rejected the opportunity that they had. Here's what Amos is saying this morning, church. Don't keep coming to church and pretending to know God and miss the opportunity to hear the word of the Lord and make sure that you don't have presumptive faith, but that you have saving faith. Presuming that we are accepted by God because we can find someone more wicked than us is just a self justifying, self deceiving mental gymnastics and it's lethal. It's like Jesus had had his quiet time in Amos before he preached the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? You've got to be perfect like my Father in heaven is perfect. Amos tells us in ch- verse 2 of chapter 4 that in judging Israel, God swears by his holiness. In verse 8 of chapter 6, he swears by his own self. Here's the point. God alone is the standard by which God judges. In verses 7 through 9 of chapter 7, Amos gives us the vision of a plumb line. There's five visions that Amos gets beginning in chapter 7. And the third of them is the vision of a plumb line. And a plumb line is a very simple tool. Do you know what a plumb line is? It's a piece of string with a piece of lead on the bottom. And you know what? A piece of string with a piece of lead on the bottom does, if you hold it like this. It stands perpendicular to the ground every time. Directly perpendicular to the ground. The plumb line is used in construction. It's used for raising up a building that's perfectly square, that's perfectly straight, that has a solid foundation, that's reliable, that can be trusted. And guess what? It's also used for inspection of that same building. Well, the building seems a little out of kilter. It seems a little wobbly. It seems a little off. Well, we go hold a plumb line. Well, is it straight or is it not straight? God says the plumb line is His holiness. That Israel will be judged by the holiness of God Himself. And the reality is that is the standard by which we will all be judged. The plumb line is used for construction, it's used for inspection, and it's used for destruction. You see, God, in the illustration of the plumb line, is saying He's like a building inspector. And he's come by to inspect the building one more time. He's given you one more chance to get the building straight. And to have a white, hot heart for God. And he comes by and he finds once more that Israel is out of square. And there's only one thing left to do. To condemn the building. And he says again in verse 8 of chapter 7. I will spare them no longer. Amos Indeed, all the minor prophets North Roanoke Baptist Church, they are a reminder to us that God is not grading on a curve. God is not grading on a sliding scale. He's not giving extra credit. The standard is God and God alone. Now, some of you go, what about about Jesus? What about all the nice things that I read about in the New Testament? Isn't, Isn't God sort of hedging on His holiness a little bit? And the answer is absolutely not. Jesus is not a hedge on God's holiness and righteousness and justice. He is the provision of the holiness and righteousness and justice of God that we lacked and could not have unless God gave it to us himself. And so he comes and he provides it and he pours out his Holy Spirit so that we may pursue and walk in his righteousness and justice with all that we have and all that we are. We are if we are in Christ, have been given that which we could never produce of our own. The one who validates the test, who passes the test of God's plumb line is Christ. Now many of you understand this morning that we can't have the righteousness of God unless we have faith in Christ. But here's what happens to you, because it happens to me. When you fail, and then you experience the discipline of God, you sometimes want to quit. You just want to throw in the towel. You want to give up. You want to let God's discipline that's very well deserved and evidence of his love for you, you want to allow that to cloud your view of his goodness. And then you become bitter or indifferent. But here's the reality. A father who loves his children will chasten his children. Hebrews twelve six. So secondly, not only what must we not play the comparison game and look around for the worst person we can find in the world, well, I'm not an axe murderer or a philandering politician, so I must be okay. No, that's not what we do. The plumb line is God and His righteousness. But secondly, we must see God's discipline as a means of His grace. Did you catch in chapter 4? Five times we read these words, Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. God targets Israel's food supply to get her attention, cutting off her daily bread, but she did not return to him. God reduced the supply of rain in the middle of growing season, but she did not return to him. God sent a scorching wind and a caterpillar to devour her gardens, but she did not return to him. He sent a plague like the plague against Egypt, taking out many of her firstborn sons, and she did not return to him. God overthrew Israel like Sodom and Gomorrah and provided a narrow way of escape like he did for Lot, but, God, but she did not return to him. The, the moments when God interrupts the pattern of sin in our life and calls our attention to something that is contrary to his will. These are moments of grace where God is pleading, return to me. But the Israelites were like Americans after 9-11. They'd run to church for a Sunday, offer up a prayer or two, be nice even for a week or two, stop honking their horn at everybody in D.C. and New York. But soon enough, everything was back to normal. And it's this very sort of faith that Amos is writing about. This presumptive faith. This faith that presents us, prevents us from ever encountering or understanding how awesome God is and how incredible it is that He still loves us in spite of our failures. In spite of all the times that we've not lived up to the plumb line. That He sent the plumb line of His righteousness down and to arrest us and to take our hearts and to make them His. Here's the reality. If you're a Christian... God will take your bread if you're running from Him so that you might again seek the bread of life. God will take your rain so that you might find the well that never runs. Dry. God will overthrow the life that you're so carefully constructing with the beautiful house and all the things that you think you need in life. God will take it and overthrow it and he will wreck your life so that he might rebuild it again in Christ the solid rock. The one who is plumb square and we can build our lives on him. But if we don't heed God's war- warnings, verse 12 of chapter 4, God says, thus I will do to you, O Israel. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. If we keep missing the opportunity to return to God during seasons of his chastening, we will face the fierce, final, and fiery rebuke of Jesus. You see, here's what some of us, I here's, here's what I wept, uh, wept over this week. There are some of you this morning who will hear uh, the message that God is holding up a plumb line. You will hear this message. You will have an opportunity to turn. You will have an opportunity to consider that God is beckoning you. Return to me with your whole heart. Return to me. And yet you will get to that day, that great and final day, when you expect it to be light and instead it will be darkness because those moments of chastening, it turns out, were actually moments of judgment on your presumptive faith. Because you presumed upon God for too long. God, yes, he's gracious. Indeed, grace is in his name. But there is a time when time is up. And if God is beckoning you to return to him this morning, I want to beg you, I want to urge you, don't delay another day. Don't walk out and go get lunch and register for your kid for VBS if your heart is not truly connected to the God you proclaim to know and serve. Because if We know that we're in the faith. The reality is those times that he chastens us, we will turn back to him. Those moments when he gets our attention, when we say, God, I want to return to you. I want to give you my whole heart. God will receive our worship and we will find Christ ever sweeter in our pilgrimage of faith. And one day we will see on that day of the Lord that it is brightness and not darkness because we will look our Savior full in the face and say, thank you for your amazing grace. Some of you this morning need to heed the chastening that God is working in your life and you need to understand that what He is saying is returned to me, declares the Lord. But finally, we must pursue and perform the justice and righteousness of God. If we're going to know that God receives our worship, we've got to live out the implications of who He is. The justice and righteousness of God was going to be poured out on the heads of Israel like an ever-flowing stream in judgment because the righteousness and justice of God was not flowing out of their lives into the people of God and the surrounding communities. The Israelites could have been pursuing the implications of who God is. Well, who is this God? Psalm 97, 1 and 2. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Did you get that? Because righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, that should not be a source of dread for the nations. It should be a source of rejoicing and gladness for the nations. How can the nations know about the implications of the righteousness and justice of God supplied through Christ if the people of God aren't showing it in the world around them? They can't. To do justice is to right wrongs. It's to support the weak and the poor, not only financially, but the poor in spirit. It's helping and punishing. It's it's helping the helpless and punishing the wrongdoer. Righteousness means to do right, to act with integrity in our relationships with God and one another. It pertains to the covenant of God, which, by the way, is why we have church membership at North Roanoke. It's why any church that would call themselves a church should have church membership, Because you're saying, I'm entering into a covenant community with you. And I'm entering in and I'm saying, I want to perform the righteousness and justice of God. And when I fail to do that, I want to ask you, dear brother, dear sister, help me get back on the path and to follow Christ. And for those of you who uh, join us, we're going to help you do that and we're going to ask you to help us do that. None, None of us in here alone is perfect. We're all going to fall. But there is a Christ and there is a standard that together as the people of God that we can maintain and pursue together as we hold one another accountable to live out His justice and His righteousness. In Proverbs 21.3, we read these words. To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. And while the Israelites kept going up to Bethel and Gilgal and Beersheba, what they were doing, we saw in chapter 5, is this. While they were sacrificing on the Sabbath, they defrauded the poor, rejected the rule of law, twisted the truth in deciding legal cases. They owned multiple houses made of stone and ivory. They imposed high rent on the poor. They took bribes and perverted justice. They cheated the poor with dishonest scales. They failed to maintain purity in the land that God had purified them when Joshua came through. And in verse 14 of chapter 3, God says that he knows of their transgressions. And then in verse 12 of chapter 5, I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. Meaning countless. You know what the word transgress means? It means to twist. And what the Israelites had done. Is they had twisted the favor of knowing about God. Into permission to live contrary to the will of God. As long as I go to church on Sunday. As long as I touch home base on Sunday. I can live however I want to. Monday through Saturday. That's what was going on in land. I can take advantage of the poor. I can charge high rent. I can disregard the needs in my community. I can pay no attention to everyone else that I've said I've entered into a covenant relationship with. They can just go and do what they want to do. I'm going to do what I want to do, and everything's going to be okay. And you know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of presumptive faith. What does that mean for us, North Roanoke? Does it mean we're all supposed to be socialists? No, it doesn't. This is a message not for the United States of America. It's a message for the people of God. God is calling North Roanoke Baptist Church to get directly involved in showing the watching world what God's justice and righteousness can do among us. What are we going to do, North Roanoke, with the knowledge that we have of our great God? What are we going to do directly North Roanoke Baptist Church through our giving and our budgeting and our laboring and our going to care for the poor among us at North Roanoke and what are we going to do to bring the hope of the transformation of the gospel and God's righteousness and justice to bear in the community around us. What will we do? Will we go about our lives Monday through Saturday with a giant yawn and never pay attention to the implications of what God wants to do in the world around us? What will we do for the underemployed and the unemployed, for the single parent juggling multiple jobs and raising multiple children, for children who have parents who really could care less about them, for mothers with young children who have no family nearby to help them even get a date with their husband, for addicts who need another chance within a structure that will truly hold them accountable, and the list goes on and on and on. North Roanoke Baptist Church, what will we do to hold up a banner? For Christ who delivers, Christ who saves. Not what will we outsource. Baptists do outsourcing really well. You know what outsourcing the mission is? It's writing a check. Man, we're going to take a percentage of what we do. We're going to send it to somebody else. And we're never going to hear a report back. We're going to never know what goes on. But we're just going to send it. Because that's what we do. And that's the way we do justice and righteousness. Well, North Roanoke Baptist Church, we're going to stand with nonprofit organizations. We're going to support people who are doing great ministry and work in the world. But that is not going to be a cop-out for not doing it ourselves. There's a lost world right around North Roanoke Baptist Church. There are people in our pews right now that are suffering and hurting with things that I don't even know about and we're going to be the community of faith that responds and gang tackles in Jesus' name those needs and those opportunities and we're going to watch a God who is righteous and just minister His healing and His love and His work deep into the hearts of people who are here and people who aren't even here yet because we're not going to say, hey, y'all just come whenever you want to and you're welcome here, but we're not going to go out into our community. No, we're gonna flip the script. We're going out of here to take the righteousness and the justices of God into the pockets of hopelessness and despair and hurt. And we're gonna trust God to fill this place with worshipers and make it a foretaste of heaven where there's red and yellow, black and white, and we look like the kingdom of God on earth because indeed we. Presumptive faith is found in verse 5 of chapter 5. Right after God says at the end of verse 4, Seek me that you may live. What does he say? Don't resort to Bethel, don't come to Gilgal, and don't cross over to Beersheba. Isn't that what we want to do? Man, that was a good sermon, brother. See you next week. Nothing in my life's gonna change. God doesn't have any area of my life to deal with. I don't compare myself to others more wicked than me to make myself feel comfortable. God never chastens me. I don't have any areas in my life that the Spirit of God is dealing with right now. There's nobody in my neighborhood that I need to reach to or minister to. There's no need in my Sunday school class that I'm aware of that the Spirit of God says you need to go meet that need today. We're just going to do what we always did. We're going to go to Bethel or Gilgal or Beersheba. We're going to go to the nearest sanctuary. We're going to sing the same songs, take up the same offerings, do the same old, same old. And what does God say at the end of chapter 5? I don't even hear it. I don't receive it. I don't accept it. It is meaningless. Presumptive faith relies upon routine and it ultimately leads to death. Saving faith, however, never settles for yesterday's gains. Why? Because saving faith is placed in a jealous God and an all-conquering king who is on the march getting souls for his kingdom until he comes again. Saving faith belongs to the one who has found this truth that the real joy is being on offense In the army of God, going after all nations who are called by His name. Verse 12 of chapter 9. Who is it that their worship is received by God? It's received by those who've been called by His name and then live out the implications of that for His great name until He comes. North Roanoke, we flipped the script this morning because we're not going to bring empty praises to our God. We're not going to just sing songs this morning. This morning, we can know that God is receiving our offerings. That He's hearing our songs. That He accepts our worship. When we stop looking around and playing the comparison game. When we heed the discipline of God as a call to return to Him. And when the faith we have in Christ the King leads us ever forward for the sake of His great name. So I'm going to invite Kim to come and lead us in a little bit of a different invitation. Yes, I'll be standing here as she begins to play. But Brother Jake has put together a great compilation of songs that lead us from confession of our sin all the way through the progression to the exaltation of our great King who is taking His righteousness and justice to the world through His people. So the invitation this morning, if you want to come and pray and even kneel on these hard gym floors and say, God, you're, you're breaking me down this morning according to your plumb line, and I, I need to be rebuilt in Christ, then we invite you to come. If you want to come join North Roanoke Baptist Church and say, you're a nut, but I want to be a part of a church that's got a preacher who's a nut for Jesus, then come on, we invite you to come. It doesn't matter where you are or where you've been, God is there for you, and he's held out the plumb line of his righteousness, and then he's supplied his righteousness in Christ. So some of you this morning, wherever it is, God is dealing with your heart, then do it. Don't sing. Just deal with the Lord right where you are. But as you're ready to sing, then don't don't cheat. Don't sing a little bit. Let's blow the roof off this place. And let's go out of here singing to our great God who has provided for us what we could not provide for ourselves. Let's go to the Lord. Father, help us to respond as you would have us respond. In Jesus' name, amen.